You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have a returning guest, the company being the returning guest, but uh, someone different there, uh, talking to BioLife4D, this time talking to the CEO, Stephen Morris. Um, I thought the company had such an interesting uh, product that they were working on that I wanted to have them back to hear more. So, Stephen, thank you for coming. It's my pleasure. Glad glad to have the opportunity to talk about BioLife4D. Yeah, and for listeners that may not have heard the other podcasts, what's What's the premise of BioLife? What do you guys do? So BioLife4D is, is a group of people that we've put together in order to work on some pretty incredible technology. Um, the leading cause of death globally, literally taking one out of every three lives around the world is, is cardiovascular disease. And, uh, and what we're working on is bioengineering, a human heart viable for transplantation out of a patient's own cells. So, so the technology that we're working on will address the, the, the major issues that, that currently exist with uh, donor hearts or donor organs or lack of donor organ uh, challenges that currently uh, plague, the, plague the world. So yeah, what's the state of donor organs, especially in terms of hearts? How many are needed each year and how many are actually donated? And what are some of the specs? Yeah, so, so, so the incredible thing is there, there's only three and a half thousand people really on the heart transplant waiting list in the United States. And it's not because only three and a half thousand need it. There's about 200,000 people that actually could use a heart transplant to save their lives. But the problem is only about three and a half thousand heart transplants take place in any given year in the United States. You've got, you've got a huge challenge with a lack of supply. So even though there's all these people whose lives could be saved, only three and a half thousand people are on the on the donor waiting list. Um, all the other people just aren't allowed. They have to literally ration those three and a half thousands for the people that have the, the highest probability of success. Everybody else just doesn't mm. even have a chance. Yeah, that's terrible. When hearts are transplanted, what are some of the criteria that's needed to make sure that the heart will work? Like, you know, I guess obviously blood type has to match, but what are the other criteria? There's a bunch of different criteria. Um, you know, one of the one of the reasons that uh, it's so difficult is because 
um, in order to prevent rejection, um, you need to have similar types of, of, of blood characteristics and, and things like that. But also, um, you just can't, even if you want to donate your heart, there has to be certain circumstances that are met for the organ to be viable. So the, the heart needs to still be beating. Someone needs to be really brain dead. And then they're able to remove that heart from that particular, from that particular donor. Um, once they do that, there's a very limited amount of time that, that there is before that organ needs to be transplanted into the, into the recipient patient. And if you think about it, um, there's only about a two-hour radius of where that heart could be because they have to transport that heart via typically um, from the hospital where, it, where it's harvested um, via helicopter to an airport then flown from an airport to another airport and flown on another helicopter to the hospital, brought down to the, the operating room in order to be transplanted. So it's very, very difficult in order to, to meet the criteria as far as, as having something that is a heart that's functional enough to work, um, that's about the same size, and that's a close enough genetic match. One of the really incredible parts of our technology is when we bioengineer the heart, not only are we addressing the supply issue, but the main challenge that there is in donor organs is that um, the, your body wants to reject it. Your body senses that that's a, uh, something foreign that's just been implanted, and it wants to reject that organ. So you have to shut, the, you have to shut down the immune system to prevent that rejection. Our technology, we take a patient's own cells and we literally reprogram them into the different cells that make up the heart. And then we bioengineer a, a, a custom heart just for them made out of their own cells so that their body doesn't reject it. In terms of uh, so making it out of their own cells, what are the uh, cell sources? And, like, what's the process? Do you culture sure. cells so, and then induce them to pluripotency? Or like, what's the path? Yeah, so what, what we do is this. Um, we, we start with the patient. We'll take a sample of the patient's blood, and from that, we'll remove the white blood cells. And once we have the white blood cells, we're able to literally reprogram those cells. So, so blood cells are specialized cells. All cells started out as stem cells, but the body communicated to those stem, certain stem cells and said, we need you to change from a stem cell into a specialized cell, in this case, a white blood cell. So the, the, each of the cells having strands of DNA in that cell, it's like a library of knowledge. So each of the cells are able to change themselves into whatever the specialized cell types are that the body needs. In our, type, in, in our case, we take these white blood cells, and what we do is we reprogram those white blood cells to become what's called induced pluripotent stem cells. So we induce them back to the stem cell state. This is a technology that's only about a decade old. Up until about 10 years ago, um, it was thought that once stem cells became specialized cells, whether it be heart cells or blood cells or skin cells or whatever type of cells, it was unidirectional, that was it. But 10, about 10 years ago, it was discovered that we can communicate to these specialized cells and reprogram them to go back to their uh, uh, stem cell state. And those are called induced pluripotent stem cells. They're induced because we're inducing them. We're reprogramming programming them back to the stem cell state. Once we do that, um, we're able to grow those stem cells to make more and more and more of them until we have enough volume of cells. 
And then we can section off those cells and reprogram them again called differentiation. We reprogram again into the different cell types that make up the heart. So there's cardiomyocytes, which are cells that are beating. There's smooth muscle cells. There's endothelial cells. There's cells that, that, that control the electrical signals that work within the heart. And so we make all of those individual cell types, and then we use those as the building blocks to literally bioengineer this heart. So what we do is once we have all the proper cell types, we put them into our, into our bio-ink is what we call it. And basically, it's like little drops of hydrogel. And inside, inside those drops, think of it almost as a snow globe. If you shake up a snow globe, you see all these things floating around. Well, in our case, it's these individual cells as well as growth factors and nutrients and other things that we put in there are secret sauce in order to keep everything viable during the printing process. And then what we do is we use a, a very specialized type of 3D printing called bioprinting, which is just a, a, a very highly specialized 3D printer that's designed to keep, to, to print with, uh, with biological materials and keep those biological materials alive during the printing process. So what we do is we lay those cells down layer by layer, um, building up uh, bioengineering this heart. We lay down also um, other cells that, are, that hold everything in place. And then, and then once we're done with that, um, the cells join together through the natural biologic process. We melt away the scaffolding or the cells that we use to hold the cells in place and you're left with the organ. Really all we're doing, it sounds like an incredible process. It is an incredible process, but all we're doing is we're, is we're providing the same type of, of conditions that happen naturally within the body, just outside the body. And we're tricking the cells to do what they do naturally inside the body. We're just having them do it outside the body and we're directing them to go the way that we want them to go. So we end up with the, with the same final product. So you're culturing cells from the person then inducing pluripotency, then differentiating them into all the necessary cell types, making the ink, printing it, et cetera, all the steps you went through. Um, so going through that process, what cells are the ideal cells to take from the person to induce pluripotency? And maybe, I would think maybe the particular heart cells themselves would be easiest, but they're hard to get at and invasive. Did you use skin cells or fat cells or what's used? No, we, 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 we use white blood cells. Um, Different people use different types of cells for different applications in this in this similar types of process. Um, a lot of people use fat cells. Uh, we find we found it to, uh, the the best cells for us to use are white blood cells. So there's some technical reasons that also um, lead into that. When you're when you're changing cells from from a specialized cell to induced pluripotent stem cells or those in, induced adult stem cells and then differentiating them into the types of cells that you want. Um, if you don't use the right types of cells or the right combinations of cells, you can have very immature cells at the end of your process. So even though it's something that would look like a heart, it may not function properly. It may not be mature enough cells in order to function the way we ultimately will need it to function, which is to be able to go into a person after being transplanted and survive that person for the rest of their life. So there's a lot of technical factors that go into that, but we found the ones that we're having the most success success with is the white blood cells. And the white blood cells can make all the different constituent cell types in the heart? 
or are they good for only some and then maybe another blood cells is better for others? No. So we, so we, the white blood cells themselves don't make any parts of the heart. The white blood cells get converted back to adult induced stem cells. And then those stem cells um, are, are able to be made in each of the, there's primarily six different types of cell types that make up the heart. And those stem cells, those induced adult stem cells can make each of those individual types of, of cells. There's other processes that, that don't really work for our type of application where you can actually change a specialized cell like a, a white blood cell directly into a heart cell. But those, those cells are typically not mature enough for us. The other problem with that is, is the volume of cells that we need in order to, to do a, 3D, uh, a three-dimensional organ like a heart. So the volume of cells are, are in the billions. And you can't take that many cells out of, for instance, of somebody's white blood cells. There's not enough of them. So you need to first convert them to stem cell state where they then, you're able to then uh, have those divide and, or keep multiplying and, and, and making more and more and more and more until you have the enough volume of cells that you can then differentiate into the individual types of cells that you need in order to bioengineer the heart. Gotcha. Now, how far along... Are you in the process? Have you been able to uh, create a fully functional heart or which stage are you at of doing your No, so no, nobody's been able to do a fully functional heart yet. That's, all, that's ultimately what our, our goal is, our objective is, because we know once we're able to do that, we'll be able to save millions of people's lives every year. So it's, it, that's, that's our ultimate process. There's, there's really two reasons why we chose the heart. The first one is because of the huge need. The global need, one out of, if you think about it, if one out of three people die of cardiovascular disease, and there's about seven and a half billion people in the world, it's a lot of people that die of cardiovascular disease. But the right. second reason that we're doing it is because on the way to our full heart, which is our ultimate goal, the heart is made up of different components like valves and, 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 and grafts and other types of things that we can take and bring out to the market on our way to our full heart viable for transplant. We call each of those our shots on goal. Sometimes we call them our milestones. So the first milestone that we did was our cardiac patch. So we took these blood cells, we went all the way through the process and we were able to make literally beating living human heart tissue. And we call that our patch. And then after that, we continued on and we just recently had a, had a, a uh, really exciting breakthrough. We had our proof of concept for our mini heart. Now, our mini heart is not a fully functional human heart shrunk down, um, but what it is, it's, it's made up of all of the components of a human heart, the, the valves and the chambers and things like that. And ultimately, it's got a lower bar. So the bar that we need to satisfy with our mini heart is for really uh, drug discovery testing purposes, in particular, cardiotoxicity purposes. So the heart doesn't have to function at well enough to survive an animal or a human long term. It just needs to function well enough to be able to give a better predictive value for that type of testing. So there's a huge need right now in, in that type of testing. Any type of new drug that goes to the market has to go through the FDA process. And the last thing you do before your human trials is they have to test the cardiotoxicity. Is, is this particular drug going to have negative effects on a human heart? 
Well, the model right. that they have to use now is an animal model. And the reason that they do that is not because people are sadists or anything like that. It's because it's the best predictive model that there is prior to going to human. The problem is it's not a terribly accurate predictive model. So the, one yep. of the main reasons that, that drugs, when they go to the human population for human trials, fail is because of this negative effect on the heart. So by providing, providing these drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies and drug discovery companies, uh, a more predictive model, after all, what's, the, what's better at predicting what a human heart will do than a human heart, even though it's a shrunk right. down version right. of it? So by, by providing this better predictive model, um, it, it provides a safer product going to the market, but also it's a, of huge interest to the pharmaceutical industry because these failed human trials, the inexpensive ones maybe are $50 million, expensive ones can be over $500 million. So that's a lot of money to risk. So if they could have a better predictive model before they risk that kind of money, it's really gold for them. Not, and as a side note, you know, people that are animal lovers, like myself in particular, um, love this mini heart concept because it, for the first time, represents an opportunity to be reducing animal testing. So if we can provide a more predictive model than the animal model, it's something that can ultimately be used instead of the annual mo animal model, and therefore yeah, saving... Great. Exactly, right, right. Um, when it comes to toxicity, I don't know if you'll know and it's okay because it may be a very difficult question. Does it tend to happen very soon after a drug is taken, if you look at the literature, or does it take quite a bit of time maybe suggesting that a drug was digested and metabolized and then it caused cardiotoxicity? Or is it direct yeah. because it's in the bloodstream, boom, it hits the heart? Yeah, so, so those, those, it's an excellent question, and the answer is yes and yes. So so some of the testing is longer term testing. Some of it is shorter term testing. The, the specific testing that we're talking about doing is shorter term. So it's anywhere typically done for a matter of a few hours to a few days. So that's one of the reasons why the, the bar for our mini heart is lower than the human heart. It doesn't have to survive. Uh, for for the rest of an animal's life. It only has to be able to survive for a matter of days or weeks. And one of the key components of that is the vasculature. So vasculature is one of the key components and one of the challenges really that there are in bioprinting an organ. Because even if you bioprint an organ, in order to keep it viable, um, the blood has to flow to all these cells to provide oxygen and nutrients and remove waste products. Without that, without that vascularization, even if you were to bioengineer an organ, that organ would just die. And the vascularization that's required for a mini heart and to keep something viable for a matter of hours or days is much less significant than the vasculature ultimately that's going to be needed for a full heart viable for transplantation. So how, how good are the organoids that you guys are making? Are they, um, do they have all the cell types? Or are they just approximating a partial function of the heart? And are you able to yeah, achieve so, vascularization? Yeah, so we, we're, we're able to print vascularization. We're able to print the different components of the heart. Right now, what we're working is on is tweaking the function so that it'll give us that better predictive, that'll give us that better predictive value. Well, I remember this from engineering class. If you want to scale up something, it doesn't always necessarily scale up with the same dimensions, you know, the same ratios of dimensions. Have you found that 
in a literally a smaller heart, an organoid that some of the dimensions of the heart have to change in order to accommodate the changing pressures and differences in a smaller scale heart. So typically, although all of it could be defined as organoids, um, really when you're talking about organized, so most of the other companies that we're familiar with are working with very like maybe small groupings of just cardiomyocytes that beat or things like that. We're really working on a full three-dimensional model. So one of the challenges that we found is we can, we can print the, these different components of the heart, valves and chambers and ventricles, things like that separately. But when you go to, it's not a matter of like a jigsaw puzzle. You just can't put those pieces together. We literally, when we're bioprinting this, we have to do it layer by layer. So we're finding that we're finding that 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 putting it all together at the same time is a bit more challenging than doing each each step separately. Also, you're exactly right. As you scale up, it's just not a matter of like multiplying everything by two. As you as you scale up, um, it, everything seems to be getting a, a, a little bit more complicated, a little bit more difficult. Um, and, you know, listen, instead of using a couple hundred million cells like we are now, we'll have to be using ultimately billions of cells when we're doing a full volume human heart. And when you're doing that, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of other um, challenges that you have, like, like in, in working with that many cells, making sure that all of the cells are viable and they're all the correct type of cells. When we reprogram those cells to be the different types of cells for the heart, that some of those cells didn't accidentally get reprogrammed into the wrong cell, wrong types of cells. So there's, there's as we as we scale up, it's not just multiplying everything by two or three or ten. Everything gets a little bit more complicated as you get as you get larger. Have you looked at uh, embryology to see how hearts first develop in a person? Like, do they develop? you know, from the, from a center and then radially grow outwards, you know, like the 3D yeah. printing, is, I guess, is layer by layer, bottom to top, but perhaps there's a way of 3D printing and turning slowly the sample that you're printing so you can approximate like a radially outwards construction. Yeah, so so that's a, it's a great question. The answer is yes. And we, we, we look at that and, and it, it's very useful information, but we can't bioengineer a heart the same way you get... Keep in mind a couple of things. First of all, Mother Nature has taken, you know, millions and millions of years to perfect that process. And you're also using, starting out with embryonic stem cells and starting from nothing. So um, we don't, we can't use a similar type of process where something grows over a person's lifetime. We have to, we have, our product has to start out where it took that person their entire life to get to. So while there's some really good things and good ideas and, and things we try and pull from Mother Nature, there's other things that, that we just can't do similarly, although, although ultimately that's the best way to do it. Yeah, do you, what, are, what are some of the other challenges in creating the organoid? Do you have scarring that happens or you know, is there enough cell-to-cell -cell communication that the heart the organoid, you know, coordinates and beats and functions properly. Like, what are some of the well, challenges you run into? Yeah, so the, so the some of the the major challenges really are getting everything to work together. So if we're if we print a valve or if we print a, a an artery, for instance, or or we call it even like a graft, um, when we print the thing separately, 
Um, it's a lot easier to get them to work. When you're printing them layer by layer and everything is already integrated in together, getting those different, the valve differentiated from the, from the ventricle and things like that, it, it's really difficult to, to, to do that. So there's a lot of complication in doing it all at one time, like what we need to do as opposed to doing it as a, as a jigsaw puzzle. Okay. So uh, how long, once you're able to do it, or even now, how long does it take to grow an organoid heart? So we're, we're, we're really weeks? not, yeah, we're really not growing it. We're printing it. So, so once we have, the print, long, print the long, yeah, the, the, it's a matter of hours. It's not that long, but really the long part of the process is the cell work that's involved. So going from that patient's white blood cells to the induced adult stem cells, the IPS cells, and then having those um, multiply in volume to have enough volume uh, to print or to differentiate into all the different cell types and then do that differentiation process, that's really where the bulk of the time is. The bioprinting itself is only a matter of hours. And then, and then you're looking at once you've bioprinted it, having that organ take a few days in order for it to for that self-assembly process, that natural biologic self-assembly process, where you go from having all these individual separate cells to all of them joining together. They know how to do that because the DNA in each of these cells, that knowledge bank um, says, okay, um, we, we, we're now cardiomyocytes, we're cells that are supposed to be, so our job is to join together and network with these other cardiomyocytes and start beating and doing all those things. So that natural biologic self-assembly process only takes a few days. So really the longest part of the process right now is the cell work up until the point where we're 3D printing. Huh. Amazing. Uh, what happens once you create the organoid? Does it just sit there and function or does it scar up? No, like so, anything no, unusual so happens to it? Yeah, so once it's printed, um, really all, all the 3D printer does, unlike a typical 3D printer that, that fuses one layer to the next, um, you can't do that when you're working with cells because you'll kill all the cells. So what the bioprinter really is doing is just placing all of the cells in the right area, and then we lay down scaffolding, just like if you were building a house to hold all of those cells in place. And, and once those cells are, after a couple of days, when all those cells have gone through those, that self-assembly process, we can then melt away the scaffolding and be left with the full organ. That takes place in what's called a, a bioreactor. And really all a bioreactor is, is, is a, a vessel that reproduces the conditions that's inside the body to keep that organ, that organ functional. So what it does is it, it provides not blood, but a fluid that's similar to blood in that it provides the oxygen and the nutrients and things like that that are required for that organ to, to stay viable. And, and it gives it the process in order to, for those cells to release the waste products so it can keep all of those cells viable. So it remains in that biochamber and bioreactor um, for those few days afterwards. Wow. This is amazing. Very cool. It's a, it's an it's an incredible it's an incredible process. You know, the the most amazing thing is that is that we're finally at a point in human history where this is possible. Even ten years ago, um, the, uh, most of the science didn't even exist. So we're finally at a point where computing technology and software technology and bioprinting technology, all these different technologies 
that need to have evolved to the point where they're at now. We're finally at that point where we can bring this all together and, and get this technology out to the market. This is, it's no longer science fiction. It's now science fact. That's probably the hardest mm. thing. You know, when I first started to learn about it, I thought, wow, this is really cool. I, I get the concept, but no way. This is like Star Trek or Star Wars technology. And, right. and it, wasn't, it wasn't until um, all of the people that we put together uh, to form BioLife uh, 40, which is really a, a coming together of people from different silos of expertise. So you have biomaterial specialists and cellular specialists and bioprinting specialists, all these different people. When I put the company together, I went to each of them and said, tell me, really, where are we, where are we at with this technology? And everyone said the same thing. We're, we're finally at the precipice. We, we now know what all of the pieces of the puzzle are. We just have to make those pieces fit. And that's what BioLife4D is doing. We're kind of coming in just in the red zone, if you will, of, of all these people's career. They've spent their careers um, getting to the point where they're at in each of these areas of expertise, in these specialized areas. And all BioLife4D is bringing all these people together to work together and get this technology out to the market. That's great. So, Steve, um, do you have, like, visualizations on the website, or where can people see and experience some of this more instead of just only hearing? Yeah, so, so we've got some really incredible videos on our website, which is www.biolife4d, B-I-O-L-I-F-E, the number four, letter D.com. We've got, and, and the reason these are, are really great videos is because they're for non-scientists. So they're people like me that can watch this and really understand and see this technology and, and, and how it works and how it's being implemented. There's a lot of really good facts about, about the heart and heart disease and all of, all of those type of things. Um, really, it's a great way to learn about who we are, what we're doing, and how we're doing it. So going to BioLife4D.com is, 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 is a great way to learn more about this incredible technology. Excellent. Well, Steve, you know, it's amazing what you guys are doing. You know, your team is doing what you're doing. So thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.